I actually wanted to school in America because I felt like that was where I belonged. That's where I would date my NBA basketball player while I'm rapping. And, you know, that was the life because there was nothing like that in Nigeria. So that dream tanked when I used my SAT money for my studio session. I think it was 5,600 or something. So, yeah, that sort of tanked because I couldn't tell my mom that I had used the money to record. So I missed the window for that year. And then there was jump. So it was like, oh, no SAT results. Why? Because <laughs> somebody didn't pay for the form. <laughs> so that was it. Yeah. So jump was the only way. everyone and welcome to episode 8 of the Made Here podcast. My name is Kilo and today I'll be speaking with a very special guest, the first lady of Nigerian hip-hop, Sasha P. A true pioneer, Sasha's journey has been one of perseverance, versatility and sacrifice as she slowly morphed into wearing various hats all at once in the course of her career. Rapper, entertainer, businesswoman, lawyer, music exec and the list goes on. On this episode, she talks about her very interesting journey and also gives us some great backstories. So without further ado, let's get into it. Did your siblings truly like dress you up in their school uniform and take you to their school to perform? <laughs> yes, they did. My mom had a fashion house when I was growing up. It was called Poise Fashion. So clearly they had ample access to tailors and fabrics. So they used to get up to no good. Mm. And um, I'm guessing that like they were in secondary school and you were in primary school. If I wasn't even in nursery, like my middle older sister is eight years older than I am, so nobody's my mates in that <laughs> house. <laughs> Are you serious? You have like seven other siblings, right? Yes, I'm the last of eight. When you have like seven different personalities in one household, it's very colorful. Um, there were different age groups, so I was exposed to different genres of music or even you know different decades of music because my parents too are music lovers um it was always like a party because imagine if one sibling had just one friend over before you know it you have a house full of kids like 16 children people used to come over for lunch and games and stuff so our house was always full even when there was no party and yeah i just i think my background i mean there were times like i'll see pictures from old albums where i'll be standing on a table and i'll be like what was happening here and they say oh you decided to subject all of us to one of your performances you know and they just used to indulge me it was fun i mean there were so many weird stories i could tell what my siblings would do like if my parents traveled i remember one time my sister scared our neighbor because they they wore my mom's house dresses like you know, the 90s then were silk. I think people wear them now. Like, people actually wear them outdoors now. But then it was like silk 90s with the house clothes and the robes mm. and everything. And they wore her wig and painted their teeth <laughs> red. And we're running up and down the street. You know, Ibadan is quiet. So imagine kids running up and down the street like midnight <laughs> because it gets really late early. But this person, I don't even know where they were coming from was walking on the road and then she sees someone in a robe running down the street <laughs> with red teeth and just went screaming you know and i remember that vividly i was maybe about five so they were always up to some something mischievous so it made it made growing up fun when they were not picking on me okay okay um like do you, do you have any other siblings in the entertainment business or is it just you well Recently, yes. Um, one of my sisters has done like a couple of cameos in movies and she's also on TVC. She does uh, the chat show on TVC in the mornings. She's there whenever she's in town. But she was in October 1st. She played the English lady, the secretary or something in October 1st. So, yeah. Um, do you think you being like the last of eight kids or like the last child gave you some sort of leeway or some sort of freedom? to experiment with music professionally? I certainly believe so. And I think by the time it got to my, you know, 
my being raised, my mom was a bit more lax than she was with my siblings. So it was, it was, it was easier. But apart from that, I mean, she's, she's, uh, you know, she's a retired principal, English teacher. So she's in the educational system. So there was no, oh, I'm dropping out of school. I want to be a musician type mm-hmm. thing going on. It was always get your degree, you know, first, and then you can do whatever else you want to do. So apart from, I mean, she was very supportive, but she, she didn't play with school. Mm. Okay. Um, speaking of degree, um, you also said once that um, the reason you chose to study law was because of Jake and the Fat Man. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Well, it certainly piqued my interest because back then I was way too young. Wow. I don't even know what interviews you've been listening to because my goodness. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, I, I absolutely love Jake and the Fat Man. And I don't know why this just, I just remembered this now, but there was always this U, UPS Aminix. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was <laughs> Advert- the ad. The ad um, yeah. that used to come on when they showed Jake and Fat Man. Yeah, I thought it was really intriguing. And yeah, I mean, that was probably why. I don't even remember. But then as I grew older, it became more about having a voice for me. Because then I just thought, you know, lawyers get things done. You know, people pay attention to them. They're taken seriously. And then it became about, you know, having a voice that, you know, could make a difference. And that was more the reason why I studied law. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, let's, let's uh, kind of like backtrack a bit more. So at what point did you discover rap in quotes? And like, at what point did you fall in love with it? Um, I think my... First of all, my earliest memory of hip hop was like MC Hammer's um, "Too Legit, Too Legit mm-hmm. to Quit," eh? mm-hmm. yeah, you know, because the dancing, the choreography that my sisters used to always do at home and stuff. But I personally began to develop like a personal interest when I started listening to Tupac. I mean, there was the whole crisscross. There was um, Naughty by Nature, you know then I was still a consumer. I enjoyed it. I used to dance. But then I started writing when I started listening to Tupac. So I started with like little poems. I remember one of my first poems was about a rat. I think it was called A Thought for a Rat, actually. (laughs) So, yeah. So I started with... I'm I'm just so, you know, I'm very empathetic. You know, I care about rats too. (laughs) Everybody needs love. So poetry here and there. And yeah, it was from listening to Pac. Okay. Um, and was it always rap? Because, um, you know, you sang a little bit at the end of uh, Adara and it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't bad. So like, was it always rap for you? Or did you experiment with other forms of music? <laughs> First of all, I am not a singer. I can hold in notes. And because I write songs, I'm really good with me- melodies, like, you know, hearing them, writing them. But um my range for music, like I said, I was exposed to different types of music. So, of course, I love, I mean, I love R&B. Probably too much for the stereotyped rapper. Like, they'll be like, why do you like R&B? Why do you like Beyonce? But, yeah, I love R&B. I love everything Motown music did. Like, when I was growing up, I could do the whole entire Motown 25th anniversary like I could act it out in our living room I would run behind the curtain and jump out as Jermaine Jackson like I I love a show so I you know James Brown um Diana Ross Michael Jackson like I love I love music in general but hip-hop I think because I was I'm generally gifted to write. Like, you know, like I said, I started with poetry and I do little stories. So that was where my, that was the talent that I discovered that I had. So I wasn't one to like hold three octaves and sing in the choir, but then I wrote really well. Mm. Okay. So like, um, at what point did you start actively recording music? Um, I, I started recording music like my second second to the last year in secondary school, a group of family friends were called the OB crew and they were rappers and they were always freestyling and doing stuff. And we had like two producers in this group. And so, yeah, that was when I started recording just before I left school. Okay. So um, like fast forward a bit, 
you uh, leave secondary school. And I, I assume at this point you were still living in Ibadan, right? Yeah. Okay. And um, secondary mm-hmm. school, and then you, you're off to uni, University of Lagos, yes. right? So, um, correct. Yeah, so what was that transition like? What what did that feel like living in Ibadan, you know, and moving to the University of Lagos? What was there some kind of uh, I don't know, like culture shock? Um, for me, it wasn't really like a transition because, like I said, I grew up in Lagos and Ibadan, so I've always been familiar with Lagos. And even before I went to uni, you know, I was always here, like on holiday with my godparents or whatever. Like, so it was something I was familiar with. In fact, I had Unilag friends before I was in Unilag say yeah so it wasn't much of a culture shock it was just a different environment it was more like an adventure to be honest and I sort of I met LD like in my first semester anyway so right off the bat like life was always different like I had school then I had studio so yeah it was more like an adventure okay well you were off to uni like did you intend to keep making music or you kind of picked that up after I go to uni and realized, oh, okay, I can still do this here? Well, to be honest, it was in the back of my mind, but it wasn't like I went there with a plan, if that makes any sense. Like I was there to study law. It was, everything was new. But I think what, what had happened was, because actually it was on one of my trips to, to Unilag to visit like my friends and stuff before I got into Unilag. We had come with my friends, the OB crew, all of us, we had, done a day trip from Ibadan to Lagos and that was the first time I heard tribesmen so we played tribesmen all the way to Lagos and so I got familiar with their music so it wasn't something that you know it was it wasn't something that I thought oh I'm gonna go to school and then I'm going to find a studio and go go and start recording but it was something I was interested in and a part of Ibadan a part of home that I took with me like anytime I'm in Ibadan I'm going to go to the studio you know so it wasn't until when a friend's cousin heard that I rapped and she was like, oh, LD, the Don is my friend and all of that. I was really excited. I'm like, are you serious? I love their music. I listen to it all the time. Can you do an introduction? And she said, yes. So I think it was even up until, I don't think I ever had the whole, I'm going to get signed or, you know what I mean? Like it was something I loved, but it it wasn't a usual thing at the time to get like a record deal or to even pursue them, you know. So even meeting them was still just as a fan. But then I get there and the first thing he says is, oh, so I hear you rap, can you freestyle? And I'm like, I can't freestyle, but I can free write. And he said, what's that? I said, it, it means I can write as fast as you think, but you know, I can't. So he's like, okay, I'm going to drop a beat. I want you to write a verse and a hook to it. And that was what I did. And then, you know, we vibed, he got my email address. We just just said, that was it. Like two weeks later, I got a contract in my email. I was freaking out. I called my guys because by now all of them had moved to, most of them were in the UK for school or whatever. So they had left Nigeria and gone to do their master's because they were always older than me. So I called and said, what am I supposed to do with <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't something I was looking for, so to speak. But I mean, it was exciting. So I'm like, I have a recording contract. And it's like, okay, yay. Get a lawyer to read it, you know, do the, you know, read the fine print and everything. And that was basically how that happened. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's that's an interesting story. Um, you guys, at that time, um, what was the direction then? Like, because um, I imagine that there, there wasn't really any clear path to, like, monetization, right? Like there wasn't yeah. there was, like there wasn't a, like any sort of structure to the industry then, um, so, yeah. Yeah. So how were you? How were you guys like looking to get past those bottlenecks? Again, you know, first of all, with music, it's been in cycles. So even at that time, all the record labels had left Nigeria. So it wasn't like there wasn't monetization. There wasn't just monetization for the brand of music we were doing. I mean, Fuji musicians were doing tours already. They were Royal Albert Hall. My first trip to the UK was as an opening act for Kwamon. You know what I mean? So, like, there was already a booming music industry. Nigerian hip-hop just wasn't in the playing field. You know, Nigerian hip-hop wasn't big enough to be viewed in those sort of conversations. So that's what it was. 
And I think that, um, I mean, I was just, I was dreaming big and everything that I had dreamed was happening even bigger than I, you know, I had imagined. So I really wasn't, you know, we were just happy to be doing what we loved. It was more about passion than about monetizing it. Cause I mean, uni, what was I really spending money on? You know, I want to look good in lawyer wearing black and white. <laughs> so really what were yeah. you really doing? You know what I mean? So it wasn't really money, but it was, Oh, I, you know, I'm inspired by a lot of people I've, I'm watching on TV. I'd love to collaborate with them. I want to go on tour, you know, all the stuff that I saw on TV were the things that I wanted to do. There was no MTV at the time. So even when I was leaving secondary school, I was signing my yearbooks, my friends' yearbooks and autographing. I don't have to give you my email address or my landline number. Just watch out for me on your MTV and channel O, you know, because those were those were the dreams. Because there was no MTV in Nigeria. There was no channel O. We watched everything on TV. We saw all these people on TV. So I'm watching your MTV raps and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to be on that one day. One day, I was probably even thinking, because I... I I have to backtrack a bit. I wanted to school in America. I actually wanted to school in America because I felt like, you know, that was where I belonged. That's where, you know, I would date my NBA basketball player while I'm rapping. And, you know, that was the life because there was nothing like that in Nigeria. So that dream tanked when I used my SAT money for my studio session. I think it was 5,600 or something. So, yeah. That sort of tanked because I couldn't tell my mother I had used the money to record. (laughs) (laughs) So you basically blew your chance to study in the US because you you spent your SAT money on like a recording session. On recording session, yes. And so I missed the window for that year. And then there was jump. So it was like, oh, no SAT results. Why? Because <laughs> somebody didn't pay for the form. <laughs> so that was it. Yeah. So jump was the only way. Man, talk about sacrificing for your dream. Man. That's crazy. Um, so how were you able to navigate the you know largely male-dominated like recording studios, sci-fi sessions, and like all the various appendages of the Nigerian rap scene as a young lady in your late teens and like early twenties? Mm. Uh, well I was 19 yeah and like I said I, I grew up with the people I started off with OB crew they were all men I was always the only woman at something whether in school whether in SRC I remember I was still saying a couple of friends and I were laughing about it the other day I was head of security at Z club SRC was our student representative council and we had this section called the men at arms who were also sort of like the security and I was the only female there so I'm I'm not it's not unusual for me to be in places where I was the only female if that makes any sense so it didn't it was just a bigger playing field I never felt like my gender was an issue until people started asking questions like this, like, oh, how do you feel being a rapper in a male-dominated industry? And I'm like, oh, it's a thing. Like, because it wasn't, it was never something that occurred to me to be an issue. Okay. Okay, so um, LD, right? Is it like, in my opinion, LD is a genius, right? And um, he he came up with some very, like, novel hacks, like some very ingenious hacks, um, like paying street hawkers to carry your to carry mm-hmm. the music and you know collaborating with Alaba, you know, mm-hmm. um, like what other methods mm-hmm. did uh, did you guys employ to bypass the hurdles that were in your past back then? I think one of one of the great things about the time was the word of mouth. The music was it had an organic sort of growth, so it was from groups of people that were just that just really liked it. And then someone would tell their friend and someone would tell their friend. And I remember there was a time when he would bring, like, if we did a record in the studio, he was he had graduated by the time I was in Unilag, of course. So he'd drive to Unilag and he'll be bumping music from the hood of the car. And people would gather around and listen, you know. So I think it was the organic approach because, again, yeah, in an era where that wasn't what was mainstream. And we had people like maybe Kenneth Music being like the popping label at the time. And they weren't really doing anything like what we were doing. So 
I'm sure, I don't know if there was ever a conversation for tribesmen to be signed by them, but, you know, it wasn't the same genre that they were focusing on at the time. So we were sort of like the underdogs and you just had to do what you could to be seen. So we were, we were like the old tech yeah, of that I time. I can imagine. I remember, because I remember, I remember, side story, mm-hmm. I remember um, hearing Sheikh Body on, um, I think I read him back then, I was like, oh, you know, it was fresh, it was different. And I was like, I mean, who are these guys speaking my language, you know, like, with, um, like, really vibe that. So I, yeah. I imagine that's yeah. how, like, the, you know, no offense, but the youngins feel now when they hear, like, hotel music and everything. So I, I totally agree. Um, yeah. Okay, so moving forward a little bit more, Oya blows up and uh, literally puts you guys on the map right um yeah did you guys know that track was going to do that mm-hmm. like when you guys recorded it and uh what was the feeling like in in the camp when that when the song did what it did um first of all did we know it was going to do what it did not particularly we had done a song prior to that called work it that only had about five or six of us on it and when the other guys heard it they were pissed that ah this hot song you couldn't put us on it because they heard it on radio and like ah where were we when you were recording this song, you know? So the the whole point of Oya was to now expand, you know, do a record that had everybody. Because prior to that time, we hadn't done a song that had all the artists that were now on Tribe Records because it was either Tribesmen and then maybe they'll feature Dale or, you know, so there was never a record that had everybody on it. And that was what Oya was supposed to be. So even Blaze that wasn't, typically in Lagos most of the time, had to come in to do a verse for it. You know, everybody had to be on the record. That was the whole thing. Like, okay, since you guys were pissed, you weren't on work it. Let's do a record where everybody's on it. And so it was, you know, it was supposed to be that anthem thing so that when tribesmen go out and perform, you know, it sort of just got its own cult following from there. And then, you know, the top seven at seven was the thing to be on. So when it was on top seven and seven, week in, week out, we began to realize that it was a big deal. Like people loved it. It was on the charts for, I think, 13 weeks or something crazy like that. So it was like, you guys, you need to shoot a video. The song is getting, you know, it just grew organically. So I don't think anybody expected the sort of response we got, but it was amazing. Yeah, I remember the top seven at seven. Like Those were great times. Um, so side story, like there's something I noticed. Uh, Bankuli right mm-hmm. um yeah he appeared in a couple of your videos not your video but like the tribesmen videos i saw him in the background somewhere in um the video for oya and i saw him in uh he made like a cameo appearance in um carry and go right um yeah what was the affiliation with the tribesmen at that time well um ayoshonaya was tribesmen's manager and Banku used to work with him and represent, you know, work with him as like the road manager. He was part of Ayoshunaya's team. So when Ayo started managing tribes men, not tribe records, he basically came in with the package. And so he used to be with us in the studio a lot and stuff. So yeah, that's how that happened. He was part of the management team. Okay, cool. Um, like on the previous uh, episode, uh, I was talking to Wale Davis of um, Should and Come Tech, right? Yeah. And uh, he told me a story um, his uncle told him, more like, more like an analogy, right? Where his uncle said um, four men cannot row a boat at the same time with like equal energy. Like they can't do that consistently yeah. for like a certain period of time. So um, mm-hmm. was that what happened to the tribesmen ultimately? Like what led to the group, you know, going the way it did? Well, I'll generally speak for myself. Um LD left the country. He went to this, he moved to the States. He decided to move to the States. So what that was how my relationship with Tribe Records sort of ended because there was no label head. There was no label, so to speak. In any camp, whether family, friends, or whatever, you're always going to have issues regardless, you know. It's like sibling rivalry, whatever. But there was always love. There was always love. It was always like a family. Yeah, but I think that was the most significant thing. I think, you know, people grow either apart or into, you know, different interests and stuff. So I can't say it was one thing, but I think the most definitive thing for me was that there was, LD wasn't around and he was my producer at the time. So basically 
it sort of ended that journey and I had to start looking for other means to continue recording. So like, um, how did you handle that situation? Um, was this when you signed to Storm Records or? Not immediately. I mean, it was, it was really tough at first because I was just so lost. Like, I'm like, where do I go from here? But the thing is, we had shot my first single at the time. We hadn't even finished shooting the single. So it was a family friend, Uncle Remy, who again became one of the owners of Storm Records at the time. But when I, when he, you know, he owned um, IVS. Oh, how do you pronounce it? Forgive me, Uncle Remy. I'm going to remember. IBST Media. So I took my rushes to him and he got someone to edit my video for me. So that was what happened when LD left. Like I had rushes, I had short parts of my video. It wasn't ready. The single was already on the radio. And so I needed a video for it. So that's what we did. We edited the video. And then Two Shots being the entrepreneur, you know, he was really with me on the distribution, you know. So I did a bunch of VHS tapes. VHS tapes, my gosh. <laughs> VHS tapes. I remember it was a box of 30 or so. And then we had those mini those mini um, tapes as well. And we just distributed them to different TV stations. And yeah, so that was the next move. And then, you know, when the video was on there, there wasn't really anything like that, you know, hip hop, female on TV. And with the success of Oya, people knew who I was. I was getting booked for performances and everything. So my um, Persiade Mokum, who, who is also Ayoshunaya's um, partner, they both managed Kwamwon together, approached me to be my manager. And so he basically was managing me for about a year or two before I even met Storm Records. So, you know, I was on the MTN tour. I was, you know, performing, opening for, I was supposed to open for Kwamwon at the Royal Albert Hall and all of that. Okay. What track was this? Was this uh, Emile Legon? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for saying the title, right? Everybody always says Ewabami John. No, it's Emile Legon. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Probably. Oh, cool. So, um, yeah, so I agree. Like, at, at this time, um, there was nothing like that on TV. So, okay, so the, the track does well. You have a video for it and it's doing well. You know, um, it's getting a lot of airplay. And I'm guessing yeah. you're still in uni at this time, right? Yeah, throughout. Throughout. I was in uni. Yeah, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but how are you able to juggle everything? Like, law is not uh, exactly like an easy course to get through. Like, how are you able to juggle everything? It's not. I'll be honest with you. Like, um, there were times when I wanted to just quit because I was like, I can't see how I'll be in school and I'll, you know, it wasn't working. And one of my lecturers actually told me no you know, because I actually went to the faculty and said, you know what, let me just go to MathCom. I think I, you know, I get the idea legally, like I, I get the idea. So I don't actually need to finish it. And the whole point of doing this was so I would have a voice in my generation, but I can see me doing that with music. Like, so I can still have a voice. And he's like, nope, you're going to finish this thing. Whatever help you need, let us know, but you're going to finish it. And that was that. So I was basically stuck. So at some point I did try to leave. And then the first time I got nominated for the Cora Awards, you know, I'd gone to Ghana, I won the regionals, and then I was nominated for the Cora African Awards and it was in South Africa. I don't know if I should say this on air, but I actually missed an exam to be there. Oh, wow. I had to miss an exam, but because God was with me, they canceled that whole entire exam and everybody had to take it again. So that was what saved me. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, man. Uh, so I was just born to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. See, that's, that's the caption. Born to do it. Like, you blew your SAT money on, you know, studio time. <laughs> you missed, like, mm-hmm. then... so, yeah. I, I used to take a lot of risks. Yeah. I made your whole faculty retake an exam just because you missed it. It was because you were busy your prayers that. Yeah, it was your prayers that made them. So it's Abby. For my for my sake, we had to do it again. So yeah. Yeah. So going back, um, um, Emile Gon does is doing well. Um, mm-hmm. like you've got your your videos getting a lot of airplay. Yeah. Um, I'm touring. So. But at the same time, like, so LD has left the country, right? So, and yeah. you've kind of like, yeah. and this is you moving on. So, um, yeah, independent. Uh, 
And um, how did you then link up with Storm Records? Was it through Uncle Remy? No, the thing is, I'd actually met Obi Azteca through LD The Dawn when he was still around. And we had done a mixtape where one of our songs were on his Ghana, Nigeria. It was DJ Panji. He had this West African mixtape. And so one of our records was on there already. So I'd, you know, I'd met him a couple of times when LD was still around. So what had happened was um, I was on tour with MTN. It was the MTN Yellow Music Tour. And um, first of all, we, we, there was a performance at Echo Hotel. Antola Dunsi had met me there. I remember it was KB that actually introduced him to me because he was like, who is this girl? I want to meet her. Like, ah, now, wow. You know, so they introduced us then. And then he was managing Diary because Diary was on Storm Records and he just came out of the Project mm-hmm. Fame house. So we're both on the tour, the MTN Yellow tour that had um, Style Plus, had African China, I think. Dari, me, um, there, was, there was a South African, I forget her name now. So there were a bunch of us, but we were going on tour. So we were in Enugu. Yeah, Two-Face was on there as well. And we were in Enugu. And after my performance, Tola Aduzi came backstage to meet me again. And he was like, who are you signed to? I said, nobody. He said, please, when you get back to Lagos, we need to have a meeting that we'd like to sign you. And so that, that was basically how that conversation started. And then we had a meeting with my manager, Percy Ademoku. And when I found out that Uncle Remy had signed on to be one of the directors of Storm, it just made it feel more like home because I was already working with him anyways. So that sort of sealed the deal for me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, side story. I was kind of uh, affiliated with Storm myself. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was back in the day. Long story. Um, what's up, G? <laughs> yeah. So I like basically I made a bootleg T-shirt of one of those, you know, like the Storm T-shirt. I made a bootleg one. <laughs> and um, yeah, so someone who knew someone who knew me and knew Obi. Uh, yeah kind of like connected dots and called Obi and said, oh, there's this guy here who kind of like, you know, loves you to the point where he's making <laughs> his own t-shirt and wearing it because I was unilag too. So, um, so okay. she, said, she set up a meeting. You know how Obi is. So yeah. like, okay, I want to do that. He wanted to meet me and um, I tried not to, you know, go for the meeting because how was I going to, you know, face him? I had knocked off his t-shirt or his design. <laughs> In a nutshell, I finally went to his Ikoyi residence. I'm sure, like, you know, he had this uh, man cave yeah. at the back, you know, like, I think it was the big way. Yeah. The big cave. Yeah. Um, and, like, yeah, I remember his, uh, he had these these uh, dogs then. I'm not sure if he still has them, but, like, very... Anyway, so I met he and I met Tola, and, um, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of, like, where the relationship started from. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so you get signed to Storm, and... Um, then like everything kind of changes with Adara, right? Um, yeah, so it didn't like, start right away. Okay, what happened like between signing Storm Records and Adara? Um, well, we were doing a bunch of features. You know, the artists were working with each other, and you know they were pairing us with a bunch of artists. And then um, I think that was around the time that Ikechuku and Neto were trying to move back home. And then they play a record for me, world famous. And I really liked what I heard because then I was, we're working on my album. And so they had me working with different producers. So I was working with Paul Play. I I was working with everybody and anybody at the time, you know, just trying to make songs for the album. And then um, I heard a record. So World Famous Academy, by the way, their rap was very different from what, I was doing or the background that I had with like tribe records, they reminded me a lot of um, Bone Thugs and Harmony, which I found very interesting. You know, they were really fast and they were very, you know, there was a lot of melody in there. So NATO used to do like a lot of their hooks and, you know, he was one of, it was Ikechuku, NATO and Uzi. I heard one of the, the songs that NATO did, it sounded like a love song. And I really liked the production because I've always sort of liked R&B type songs and I was like oh who produced that record and he said oh some guys because Neto lived in Abuja so he was like oh some guys in Abuja blah 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 
you know, ET Quake Studios and everything. So I told Obi, I want to go and work with them. Like, I'd like to do some records with them. So I went to Abuja and I was there for about a week. And that was basically how Adara was recorded. In fact, I had done, I think I'd done a song or two before we did Adara. But Adara was written out of frustration. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a good record because it's vulnerable and it's honest. And I find that those are the sort of records that are forever because when you write a record like that, it's not even for you. At some point, it becomes bigger than you. It's not for me. It's like everybody can relate to it because it's nothing, what I'm going through is not peculiar to just me. And I remember that day I was in the studio and, you know, Sasha P, you know, I was, I was on TV, I was on everything. So people used to act different around me. And it frustrates me because I'm 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 a homebody. Like I like to just chill and relax, but everybody's treating you like, oh, don't make noise. Sasha is here, or whatever, whatever. And then they were trying to tell me what they thought I should sound like. Like, oh, why don't you try this? Oh, why don't you try that? So I got really frustrated because everybody was like in my space. So I got really frustrated. And then again, I was there in Abuja. I wasn't where my city. I was staying with my friend, Nado's car and driver were there. So I just left. I left the studio. I walked on the road. I saw a taxi and I got into it and I didn't have anywhere to go. And I just told the guy to be driving around. Madam, where are we going? I said, just drive that supermarket there. You know, he just, he was just, we we're just going around. So after a while, I told him to, I, I bought a few drinks. I don't even know what I bought. It wasn't alcohol because when I'm working, I can't drink. So, you know, he took me back to the studio and everybody was like, where did you go? We were looking for you. We couldn't find you. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway. I get into the studio and then a riff is playing, which is the other riff, like it was playing and I liked what I heard. So I got into the booth and just sat on the floor, which is typical me, like lights off. Because when you're in the booth, nobody can sit down there. So it's like the only place where I can really be by myself. So I got into the booth and then I started writing to to what he was saying like so I said give me a piece of you know give me a paper and a pen and I just sat down on the floor and I was just writing I literally was writing how I was feeling so I wasn't trying to rap because when I get upset that's that's my release I write poetry I write in my diary so I was just like look I want to get you know I want to talk about stress I want to get it off my chest take my time and invest asking the worst is all this sleepless thing. you know I was basically just venting and then I vented a 16 and I'm like, oh, let me record it. And then I recorded it and they were like, oh my God, dope, dope, dope. And that was how, you know, like that. We did three songs that night and that was how it happened. So I came back to Lagos with the three records and Adara was one of them. In fact, before I left Abuja, I premiered Adara on mixed version on Rhythm, Matilda Duncan's show. Because she was like, oh, Sasha, you're in Abuja. We heard you've been working. You want to give us an exclusive? And because everybody that had played the three records for, everybody liked Adara. So I was like, you know what? Oh, for old time's sake, let's play it. Like, mixed or anything, but here it is. So I don't even think it had a title at the time. We played that, and I came back to Lagos with the three records, and that sort of changed the entire direction for the album. And so... I went back a couple more times to finish recording my album in Abuja. Okay, so like when you recorded it, like um, did you know it was going to do what it did? Like I'm always very, like I always like to know, like did you, at that time, did you know, like I, I we definitely have something here? That's the thing, like like I keep saying, when you're doing stuff, you really don't know what what it can do until it does it because there weren't many precedents before that, if that makes any sense. So it wasn't like, oh, this person did such and such numbers. This is my target. You know what I mean? There wasn't anything to go by. There was Two-Face. There was African China. There was this. Nobody was doing what I was doing. So there wasn't really anything to compare the progress or not to. You know what I mean? So it's just, oh, this is a good song. Maybe they'll like it the way they liked Emile Gon. <laughs> you know, there, it was never like, but I knew it was special, like I said, because as soon as I was done, even while we were recording, you know when, yeah, recording a song and everybody's just like, wow, wow, wow. It was a moment. So it was like everybody I played that record for liked it. And that's not normal because even when I was writing poetry, like I used to make my friends in school that time, immediately after assembly, I'll make them sit down and I'll be reading poems to them. Tell me what you feel. Tell me what you think I'm saying. Tell me what you think this means. You know, that sort of trying to just get reactions. 
So mm-hmm. I played three records and every single person picked Adara or the song that would become Adara. Everybody was like, this is my favorite out of three. This is my favorite out of three that I had recorded that night. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know, but I, I realized that everybody liked it. So there had to be something special about it. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's great to like get some kind of context to like the creation of the song. Cause I remember back then when the video just came out um like I, I was always intrigued by the the newspaper clippings on you know on on the walls and i used to yeah. ask myself like were these like legitimate um you know uh attacks or like did these things really were they really printed did people really say these things like oh she hasn't had a hit yeah. since um she hasn't had a yeah. hit since uh, emile gone like were, were those like genuine yeah. articles yeah, so the the things that were printed on the newspaper prints were actual things people had said to me, whether, you know, on Bella Niger, which was just a blog at the time, or yeah. in person, or, you know, you know, Nigerians can be very, um, you know, they know how to insult you when it sounds like they're paying you a compliment. So you go for an interview and people will be giving asides and they don't mean you well like Amal music. So um, the concept for the, like I wrote the script for the video and my concept was way grand. It was, okay. You know, at the time, Storm Records was producing Big Brother Nigeria and our office that was used for Big Brother. So like they had TV, you know, they had a whole editing suite at the back of the office and everything. So I actually wanted to shoot parts of the video in the, as a diary scene in Big Brother. Like, so the idea was to be talking to Big Brother and, and venting, but they had pulled down the sets for Big Brother. So what had happened was, I even had, um, what's his name? The guy that shot Ginny's Nobi God. What's his name now? That video director was the person I wanted to shoot my video. So had approached him and his bill was really high and they're like no there's this new kid his name is Clarence he's Shinopita's son blah 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 let's you know let him shoot your video and I'm like no I don't want anybody to use my my you know I really like this song I don't want anybody to use my video for trial and error and they're like no 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 let's try him but I didn't have a choice because I wasn't the one paying for the video at the time it was later I started dropping money (laughs) so (laughs) I you know they invited him to the Storm Records office, and I met him. And you see, the thing is, I'm a creative, so I'm big on connecting with people. I say that I say that even because you're getting me to speak so much right now because you did your homework. I enjoy great conversation. I enjoy people that do their job well, basically. So I sat down with Clarence, and he said, see, Sasha, I've seen your script, and I can promise you that with the budget Storm is giving me, you cannot achieve it. But this is what I'll do. For everything you're trying to do, I'll show you how we can do it on a smaller scale. You know, so the confidence and the fact that he was very, you know, straightforward and was able to break down the process of how he was going to achieve my vision was what made me, you know, take a liking to him. And I was like, oh, this is great. Let's do this, you know. So the whole diary scene, again, the studio for Big Brother had been pulled down. We couldn't get clearance from Endemol. So I couldn't do the diary session there, which was why he was like, you know what? All these things that, they said to you that upset you send me a list of everything and i'm going to print them on newspaper like you know like press clippings so there are a few real ones there but made most of them were things he just printed out and pasted on the wall so me sitting in the dark on the floor was to simulate the diary session and then my press scene where i was dressed like the president was supposed to be an actual press conference like i wanted people sitting down there, me pointing at them and, you know, saying, ask me a question. You know what I mean? Like a proper pressing said, well, mm-hmm. we will not have an audience, but we can build you a, a podium. My Black Panther movement, I wanted us walking in the streets, you know, like when Tupac's mom was in Black Panthers, I wanted Afros. I wanted people slinging on the streets and everything. I wanted a crowd. Again, budget, we couldn't do that. So three <laughs> people with our Afro <laughs> dressed as the Black Panthers, with our backdrop, you know. So he basically just, you know, brought the dream down. He downsized the dream to a level that I was comfortable with, that I didn't mind, as long as the vision was still there. 
I didn't mind. And so that was how that video. So basically, um, Adara was the result of you venting because of like the pressures and like various, you know, things you had faced. Now, I'm thinking now, did you create new problems or challenges or new, like new pressure for yourself with, with the success of Adara? Like one of the clippings in the other video was, you know, oh, she hasn't had a hit since Emile gone. Like, is she this, is she that, you know? So now, like, you being successful, like, Adara being a successful song, did that create more pressure? Like, oh, I need to, like, you know, I need to keep delivering at this level. Will I have another? When will I have another? Did it, like, did it come with, like, a new set of uh, pressure? You know, I didn't really have pressure of... I feel like a lot of the time, the pressure is outside, you know, it's people's opinions. It's it's people's projections. That's where the pressure really is. Because again, like I said, I'd been recording. So because you're not, you, the music isn't being released, people are saying, oh, where, where's her next hit, you know? But I was recording anyway. I was performing anyway. And I was getting tired of performing only one, you know, I'd perform other songs, but they only knew one song. So you do your whole set and finish with the one they actually know. So I was getting tired of that cycle. And by the time I recorded Adara, like I said, I was already working on an album. So it wasn't like there was a there was a follow-up plan this time. You know what I mean? Because at the time that I released Amy Lego, I had become an independent artist. So it was just a, you know, let's keep working, let's keep doing shows so that we can raise money and do another video, or whatever. But by this time with Adara. You know, like I said, even that night, I recorded three songs. I already had songs I'd been working on prior to that time. So it was not a, a, a situation of where, you know, I'm at, I've gotten to my chi. Let's see how many songs I can record at this level and then pick the best ones for the album. So at the time of the other, I wasn't feeling pressure because I was recording a lot anyway. So it was like, there's music. We just need to push it out. So... No, I didn't feel pressure at the time. Maybe later, but not then. So, like, moving forward a bit, um, you focus on uh, your other businesses or, like, your other business, which is um, your, you know, your clothing brand, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. um, from what I understand, you were, um, you already had your fashion brand while you were, you know, doing music, right? Yeah. Um, so it was more like put, putting, like, Correct me if I'm wrong. So it was more like putting one to the back burner and pushing the other, you know, to the front burner, right? It wasn't even like that. It was just it was just highlighting something else that I did, highlighting a different expression, as I'd like to call it. And yes, I did take a step back, but it wasn't. It didn't happen all at once. If that makes any sense, it didn't yeah, happen all okay. at once. I was getting a little frustrated with the way things were working in the industry, so I wanted to be passionate you know at some point music became business mm. it wasn't fun anymore like it wasn't it w- you know it wasn't just about passion yeah anymore. it wasn't you enter one room and somebody plays something and you're like oh my god and then you guys sit down and six hours later you're still you know spilling your guts and just connecting everything became business everything became oh yeah you, ha- you know this next record has to do this and do that you have to be able to perform at this end of year party you know what i mean it started becoming a job which I mean, realistically, it is because it is it's music business. It's not for fun, but so I wanted to. I wanted a new challenge. I wanted to do something that I wasn't familiar with doing in my sleep. So I just I needed mm. a different expression, and that's really what eclectic by Sasha was. So I took it from from um, what's it called bespoke and started a retail line ready to wear, which hadn't really been done at the time because most people were, you know, presenting clothes for parties and stuff, but I wanted affordable clothing. And that was what we did with that. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember your first um, your first collection was available at uh, Les Pass. I think that's how it's pronounced, right? Yes, Les Pass. Um, but, yeah, Les Pass. And, uh, like, that's, that's one outlet or one brand that's not... Uh, that's not here anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, what do you think are the challenges that you know fashion brands in Nigeria face um, as regards continuity? I mean, I think anyone that's in fashion would tell you that it's a labor of love. First of all, it's also a very capital-intensive business, and every time you you 
put up a product, it's a risk you're taking, you know. So this capital intensive period. And I think one of the challenges is manpower and infrastructure. And even though a lot of people have tried and invested, like one of my heroes in fashion in Nigeria is Antonike of Rough and Tumble. She's done amazingly, like she's goals when it comes to fashion. The whole, the whole setup, photo studio, like she's doing it properly the way it's supposed to be done. And very few people can do that because they don't have the financial capacity to. So that's coupled with manpower. Things are expensive. So you see that you become, sometimes you're competing with, I mean, now things have gotten way better than they were even at the time that we, we did that. But, you know, getting good tailors, keeping good tailors, and then marketing your clothes to the right market or to the right, um, what's it called? Your target market. I still think yeah. a lot of people struggle with, you know, you can have a brand that's doing well two, three years, and then you don't hear anything anymore because in order for you to sustain that momentum, people have to keep buying. And it's interesting to see that Nigerians are not very consistent. You know, it's like the way the nighttime business is. If 11.45 is raining right now, it might have a one-year rain and then six degrees or whatever opens and all of a sudden everybody wants, you know. So that's sort of how consumer behavior is in Nigeria in general. But then over time, because people have decided not to give up, you find that people start finding their favorite. So the way you can decide that, oh, my favorite burger is at this place, but I like the jollof rice here better. People are now able to say, okay, when I want work clothes, I buy from this designer. When I want party clothes, I do this. When I'm getting married, I use this vendor, you know? So, where, you know, things are getting better, but there's still so much work that can be done if the government was properly involved in building infrastructure in the fashion industry. Okay, you 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 just talked about like the gap you saw in the market, right? Yeah. Which you you know tried to fill with uh, eclectic by Sasha. Yeah. What gaps did you see that inspired you to start uh, Purple Fire Entertainment? Okay, so with Purple Fire again, this is something that has always been there. Like Purple Fire was probably around when my first album came out. Period. Like so, it was registered that far back. So a lot of the things, okay. what happens is I just start shedding light on the other things I do because sometimes people don't know that I do these things. So Purple Fire has also always been there. And um, with respect to a gap, I didn't really see a gap with Purple Fire. What I wanted to do was to be able to do, I wanted a home for the things I did that weren't music, if that makes any sense. So for instance, like organizing events, my creative direction, like, you know, I was creative director for Hip Hop World Awards for about eight years, you know, script writing, all of those things. I wanted a home for that. And that's what it was like an entity. It's an entertainment company for that. Now, what's what we created last year is Hard Knock Series, which is a series of, you know, artist development courses, one-on-ones, training, something I've also always done, but for free. I created that because there was a gap. I started realizing with booking artists and stuff that a lot of artists make it big, but they don't understand the business. And then two years, three years down the line, they can't sustain themselves and they're mad at the record labels. They're mad at the system. And the issue is because nobody ever bothered to do the development process for them. And it's really hard when an artist has already made it to tell them that there's things they have not learned, you know, how do you tell somebody that is already booking shows for five million naira that he needs to do at his development? You know, because sometimes in Nigeria we work backwards. And so that was the gap that I saw with Hard Knock series. And I'm like, you know what? There's a lot of knowledge in here. Let the artist teach the artist. And that's really what that platform is for, to educate other people so they don't make mistakes that people before them made. So what's the what's the reception to that being like? Because I know um like being a creative myself and, you know, also knowing other creative, like, it's it's sometimes it's hard to um, take correction or, you know, direction, like, oh, you need to do this. Everyone like, nah, like, I know what I'm doing. Like, Australia, we're talking to, like, the younger creative people. Mm-hmm. Well, so far, I'll be honest, I feel like the people that need it the most aren't the people that have been interested, which is sad. Mm. And 
Like, with anything that you start, I'm a creator. So I know that I've, I've experienced this birthing process many, many times in my career. So I realized that when you bring a new idea, it takes time. You know, there's a whole teething process. There's a whole, you know, should we do it? Should we not do it? No, this is bad. This doesn't make any sense. So it's a, it's, it's a process. It's an ongoing process. So like I always say, I say, catch them young. If we can't catch the ones that have already <laughs> passed us, we'll catch the next generation so that by the time they get there, they're better equipped. So it's not easy. I remember the, the session we did last year, the Jumpstart Your Music Career course, I had reached out to people in my industry and because I did the syllabus and then I wanted different people to take the courses so that it wouldn't be just Sasha. You know, when the students see that other people in the entertainment industry that have peculiar stories to themselves share their stories while teaching them something, it would broaden their, you know, horizon and make them, you know, a bit more receptive towards it. Because, you know, a lot of the time, people do things in entertainment just to make money. It's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's business. You want to make money. So a lot of people, when you present an idea, people are on the defensive naturally because in their mind, oh, this is just your new racket. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this is another, another angle, Abby. You want to use us to make money. But <laughs> when they came and they connected and they learned, I mean, there are people crying during the session. It was really intimate. And you could, I could see that it was a necessary thing to do. And I'm so grateful that I was able to do it until now, you know, some of the students, I'm so grateful to, to watch their progress even now, you know. I wish we could do more and we're still advocating and trying to raise money so that we can teach more people because the people that are eager cannot afford the classes. The people that can afford it think they don't need it. And we only start, you know, it's when you start moving in international waters and speaking to the big labels and everything that you start realizing the gap because sometimes we glorify mediocrity in this country. It's not even sometimes. A lot of times we glorify mediocrity in this country and it can be very embarrassing as the giant of Africa. And this, I'm speaking about music specifically. So, yeah, it's Mm. an uphill battle, but it's something I'm used to. So we'll keep pushing. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that phrase, um, (laughs) uphill battle. Just... Yeah, just let's put it to that. I'll come back to that. So um, you also have your hand in the like food industry, right? With Corn Nation. Yeah. The first time I came across it was on Instagram. The idea was like very novel to me. Like I'd never seen anyone do what you guys do to like corn. Yeah. Like, what, what, what's the inspiration for that? God, just God. Because prior to that, I didn't even eat corn. And prior to that, the only sort of corn we had in Lagos was regular corn, not sweet corn. So what had happened was I had a dream, similar to the way I was given the name Sasha. I was, I was sleeping and I dreamt of corn, yellow looking corn in a box on a picnic table and it looked really fancy. So I woke up, it was so weird to me because like I said, I, I didn't eat corn. The only corn we have, you know, the sweet corn in tins occasionally, you're doing fried rice, you put it in there. So I woke up and mm. I started Googling fancy corn. I mean, that was the first thing I put in the Google. Fancy corn. Corn in a box. Because <laughs> I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> fancy corn. Go make corn. You know, I just started searching. And then I saw all sorts of things. And then I, I discovered the Mexican elote and how they eat their own corn. And it was sweet corn and everything. So I said, okay, let me try this thing. And, I, and the first corn I tried was regular corn. Those women by the roadside that would do regular. And I used that and tried, you know, I was looking at their recipes and testing it out. But the corn didn't look like the one I saw in the dream or the one I found. Oh, it was just burnt and orange looking. <laughs> I'm like, okay, there's something wrong here. So, I, you know, I did more digging. I, oh, there's a strain called sweet corn. So I went to the supermarket looking for sweet corn. Yeah, we have sweet corn sometimes. It comes from the north. Nobody grows it here. You know, so so we only have it for like three days a week. It spoils really fast and blah, blah, blah. So to even find the sweet corn to test the whatever was hard. So I went to their warehouse. Look, anyway, that's a very long story. To cut the story short, I finally got seeds. A friend of mine sent me seeds from America. And then I shared it amongst like three different farmers. 
and it took like three months to grow because that's like the farming time for it and then you know during that time i started perfecting my recipes because i started thinking okay this one i found online is a mexican elote how do nigerians eat corn nigerians like coconuts nigerians eat it with african pear nigerians eat, you know so i started experimenting with a bunch of things and then i'd have my friends over and then i'll cut it up in pieces and say taste it what do you think do you like this do you like that and that's basically how i was born so um, basically you had to grow your own corn here yes right to get it right yes what year was this 2016 is that still how you get your corn like yeah you have to grow your corn no, or... but the thing is like with the farmers now everybody's growing sweet corn because all of a sudden the, there's now a demand it's readily available so people are growing it more Okay, so you juggle all these things at the same time, right? And um, like, how have you been able to transition from being an artist mm-hmm. into being like head of talent management for Flight Time Productions? Well, the interesting thing is, it's not a transition because I've always done this 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 role I'm playing. I've always played simultaneously, even with my career, and that's the thing. I think because I don't come from an era where you you share everything does that make any sense like everything is not a social media post everything if you if you see me when I'm mm-hmm. around, you see me so for instance like hip-hop world that was started in 2006 talent i've been booking talent since then you know curating artists to perform for the show you know working on concepts for their performances booking presenters from south africa to come and present our, you know what i mean i've been booking artists since 2006 even before adara came out so it's not something that is new that i'm it's not a new skill it's a skill that i've honed over the years that has now transitioned to live concerts from award shows and booking events so it's something that i've also always done by the way i mean like even on storm records we had i don't know if you're familiar with los i produced their concert that they did at the time you know that was part of my job, scripting their performance sets, building their styling, working with Zion. This is how they should look. I, I literally recorded the scripted their intro and gave them, you say this, you say that, you know. So everything I'm doing, I've always done, even when I was rapping. So I think the only thing I'm not doing now is actually being an active performer. Do you still have any plans of uh, doing that again? I don't have plans not to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, like, in my opinion, like, um, like I always imagine pioneers to be people who, like, in a battle, right? They go up the hill, mm. to the top of the hill, to scout, like, enemy positions and whatever. Yeah. Then, and most times, they end up with a lot of arrows in their backs, you know. And um, yeah. so, like, if you could go back, mm. if you could go back in time, like, is there anything you would do different? Um, or, like, anything you would more, like, amplify or maybe had you know you would have started earlier maybe blowing my own trumpets i think i would have done a lot more of that because i recognize that if if you don't post it it's like it didn't happen which is weird yeah but that said there are plans to also you know document the history of what has happened so it's not a bad thing i don't i don't think i think everything happens the way it's supposed to happen so I, I really don't have any regrets, so to speak. There was a time in the Nigerian entertainment industry or even African entertainment industry where you couldn't sell anything if you weren't selling it with hip-hop. I mean, from sports to milk to think of anything. If you there was no hip-hop on that one, you, you weren't selling it. And so right now, that you can't really sell anything without pop. Pop is what is popping. So... That's the cycle of music. And I was saying that I'm generally very enamored with the movement called the alternative, you know, they call them the alternative, but I see it as the resistance, you know, the people that have decided not to compromise on their, you know, their passion or their t- type of music or whatever. It's a movement and usually it always starts off as if, oh, these are the underdogs. And then before you know it, that's the quality that is going to be required from everybody else. So I think that there's an uprising, you know, Every every few years, when the music gets too diluted, some people come up and change the game. And I think that's about to happen again. And I'm really excited to watch it occur. Like, I'm a fan of the movement. Mm. So it's coming. 
I agree with you 100%. Um, man, Sasha, thank you for taking this time out to talk to me. Um, I truly appreciate it. Thank you, Kelo. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, Kelo here again. Thank you for taking time out to listen, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can stay ahead on new drops by subscribing to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from and by joining the conversation on our Twitter and Instagram pages. 